Welcome to the Epicenter Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about Epicenter Church, visit epicenterchurch.com.au. So today, uh, for those of you that don't know what we're doing, we are starting, I briefly shared about it before, a marriage on... uh, marriage, relationships, sex and intimacy. It's all from the Song of Solomon and what we're calling it is Kiss Me Like You Mean It. So this week is week one. Who is excited? Who's nervous? Yes, fantastic. I like it. So let me pray and then we'll get straight into it. Sound good? Fantastic. All right, God, I thank you that You've given us the gift of marriage, Father. You've given us sex, Jesus, and that you want us to have intimate relationships together as as spouses, Father. And you want us to build relationships together, Father, while we date, Jesus. Relationships that honor you, God. I pray that as we go through this series starting tonight, Father, that what happens is, for one, it builds our marriages, Jesus, stronger, God. As we look and study what your word has to say about marriage, Father, it it, it develops our intimacy together, Jesus. It it strengthens us as we come together and and as single people and start dating. And I pray that ultimately what comes out of this, God, is that we get to see what you say about these issues, Father, about sex, Jesus, about marriage, about relationships and intimacy. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. So I have a joke that I'm going to start with. I had another way I was going to start this joke, but I decided that was a bad idea because the last time I found jokes off the internet was Easter and no one laughed. <laughs> that bad. I think this one is a little bit better, but yeah, I, ho- I hope as well. So this is a test to see if I'm ever going to do this again. Are we ready? Yes. A therapist has a theory that couples who make love once a day are the happiest. Who thinks that sounds good, married people? Oh, gosh. It's not going well so far, is it? They are the happiest. So he he decides that I'm going to test this at my next seminar by asking everyone there. And so he asks them. He says, how many people here make love once a day? People put their hands up. And he says, half the people raise their hands up. Each of them grinning. Very happily, he's so happy with themselves. The next one is well, once a week. So now he's trying to work out who are the happiest, how often do they make love. And so once a week, a third of the audience members raise their hands. Their grins are not quite as exciting as the people that were doing it um, once a day. Once a month he goes on and the same thing happens. A few hands go up, but they're not really excited. Then he asks the question that everyone is waiting for is, okay, what about once a year? He asks this question, and this guy launches out of his seat, like jumping up hysterically, like he is excited. He's like, yes, that's what we do. That's what we do once a year. And the therapist is like, this has just destroyed my theories. This guy is evidently more happier than anyone else. And so he asks, if you only have it once a year, what's making you so happy? He's like, today is the day. Yeah, it was a bit better than Easter, yeah? <laughs> Fantastic. So, I suppose the question is, why are, we, why are we doing this? Before we launch into it, why are we doing it? The, ultimately, the reason is this. We believe that marriage is God's idea. 
We believe that sex is God's idea. We believe that intimacy is God's idea. The relationships are God's idea. And this is what He has given to us. And so if He has given this stuff to us, then it would make sense to ask Him what He says about it or to study out what He says about it or what He suggests with it. And so what we're wanting to do with it, ultimately, if we believe that marriage, for instance, is from God, then we want to know what God has to say about it. Because if He's the one that instituted it, then obviously He's the one that knows how to build the perfect marriage. And so if we study out what God says on the issue, then we've got an understanding of how we can build and sow and and build up and strengthen our marriages. Same thing with God wants us to date. So obviously, if we're wanting to get married, we need to date. You can call it courting, you can call it whatever you want to call it, but for the, we're going to call it dating for, for this series. So God wants us to date if we want to get married. Well, there's a way I believe that God wants us to go about dating. And so again, we, we want to come across it from, from, from these angles as far as this is why we're doing it, because we want to see single people dating healthy. Doesn't really make sense, that, that phrase, but you know what I'm saying. We want to see healthy relationships blossom and bloom and develop into marriage. We want to see marriages blossom and bloom. We want to see marriages of strength. We want to see marriages that produce healthy kids as, as far as there's, there's no abuse, there's, there's no suffering, there's, there's no domestic. We want to see that. And so if we can be deliberately teaching about that from what God's Word has to say about it, I think we got a good chance anyways of developing a healthy culture of marriages. So when it comes to sex, though, because a large part, as you're going to discover through the song, is about sex. Sex in the world is seen, Mark Driscoll starts his series when he goes through the Song of Solomon with the same thing, and I thought it was just too good not to, not to copy. So yes, I am plagiarizing right now. So you can forgive me. Thank you. Sex is seen one of three ways. It'll be seen as God, it'll be seen as a gross, or it'll be seen as a gift. As far as our culture generally sees sex as a God, in that we are saturated with sex. It's one of the first things you do when you start dating, because that's our idea generally of building intimacy. It's how we sell anything and everything. The best way to sell anything is to put a a female up there, an attractive female with as little clothes on as possible, or I would be the perfect specimen to sell anything to anyone. That was a... You guys aren't aren't working with me today at all. But ultimately, we use it to sell everything and anything because it's the first thing our minds are gravitating towards. It's in the majority of our movies, and it's not just a theme that you know what's going on. It generally gets express quite thoroughly. Ultimately, a God is this. It is anything that has your full attention. Anything that that takes our full attention is God. We will be putting that in the place of God in our lives. And so when it comes to sex, if sex is the prevalent thing in our minds, in our media, in our movies, in our everything, and that's at the forefront of our minds, then that is God. Now, I know that we can say that with everything, but Ultimately, what we often do or what the world often does is portrays sex as God. The other one is gross. This happens oftentimes out of abuse. If we were abused, 
we've got a much easier chance of looking at sex as something that's gross, something that is undesirable, something that isn't good, or it comes from a poor sex education of what sex is. Ultimately, this is the predominant view that the church has held for centuries. This is a letter from a pastor's, from a pastor's wife to a young woman that, about her upcoming wedding night. And so it says, To the sensitive young woman who has had the benefits of a proper upbringing, obviously this is British, I'd say it in an, in an accent, but I can't, so I'm not even going to try. No. The wedding day is ironically both the happiest and the most terrifying day of her life. On the positive side, there is the wedding itself. On the negative side, there is the wedding night during which the bride must pay the piper, so to speak, by facing for the first time the terrible experience of sex. At this point, she says, let me concede with one shocking truth. Some young women actually anticipate the wedding night ordeal with curiosity and pleasure. Beware, she goes on, beware of such an attitude. One carnal rule of marriage should be never forgotten. Give little, give seldom, and above all, give grudgingly. Otherwise, what could have been a proper marriage could have become an orgy of sexual lust. Exciting, yeah? absolute in the victorians in the victorian era or age there was this idea that men were extremely sexual and were totally out of control and so if if they saw curvature on anything it would highlight a sexual appetite or desire and so you've got the the furniture coming out of the victorian era had curves and curvatures on it yeah the tables had the knuckles and everything so they drape the tablecloths all the way to the ground so that no man would be turned on. In 200 AD, so this is 200 years after the death of Christ, church authorities issued sexual etiquettes to keep people holy. They forbid, or they forbid sex on Thursdays because it was a day of Christ's arrest. On Fridays, that was a day of his death. On Saturdays, in honor of the Blessed Virgin, which was, is Mary, for those of you that don't know. And on Sundays, in honor of the departed saints, Wednesday, Wednesday sometimes made the list. Also, what made the list was 40 days, the 40-day fast periods before Easter, Christmas, and Pentecost. And also feast, the feast days of the apostles, as well as the days of female impurity. The list got to the point where only roughly 44 days a year remain available to have sex with your spouse. Crazy, isn't it? The reality is when we talk about sex, the church doesn't talk about sex. The church has generally seen it historically as gross. The church doesn't want to talk about it because it's uncomfortable. Often we'll avoid the subject because it's not comfortable. And the reality is what ends up getting happening when we talk about sex or when our kids find out about sex is at school or it's through the movies or it's through the internet or it's through their friends or it's through whatever else. But it's not from what God has to say. It's not from what the church has to say. It's not what the Bible has to say. And in my mind, when we're looking at sex, marriage, relationships and intimacy, this is a big problem. If we're wanting to teach our kids what God has to say about something, not what the world has to say about something, if we're wanting to teach the community how something is intended to be used as far as how God has planned it to be used, then I think the best thing that we can be doing is teaching about it. 
Ultimately, that's why we're talking about it. And the other, th- other thing is, the other way that you can view sex is as a gift. Sex isn't to be abused in any way. Sex is rather is a gift given to us by God, given to us when we enter into marriage, to be used in that. It draws us closer together. There's multiple things that sex does, and we'll go into that and, and look at it as we, we go through this series. But ultimately, that's why we're looking at it. And so we're going to be starting it tonight, obviously, with Song of Solomon's chapters 1, um, verse 1 through to verse 4. And to give you some background on what Song of Solomon is, it is this. It is wisdom literature. In wisdom literature is generally looked at as the Bible as books pertaining wisdom to different areas. And so there's Job, Lamentations, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Job addresses suffering and God's sovereignty. Lamentations, how to grieve. Proverbs distinguishes wisdom from foolishness. Ecclesiastes is about the vanity of life and that living in obedience to God provides a grounding for human life. And obviously Song of Solomon is what we're looking at and it's a poetic or it's a it is a poetic dialogue about love and marriage and the gift of sexuality. So who's ready to do this? Yeah, fantastic. The song is written by King Solomon. And he there's gonna be three voices that we're gonna hear speaking all throughout of it. The first one voice is Solomon's wife, Teza. The other one is her friends, the young woman of Jerusalem, and Solomon himself, young man. So when we read about them in the Bible, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It will refer to them like this. Solomon's wife will be young woman. Her friends, Tira's friends, will be young woman of Jerusalem, and and Solomon himself will be young man. So if the screen is working, so we can do this. Song of Solomon 1. One and two, it says this. This is Solomon's Song of Songs, more wonderful than any other. What he's saying is, I've written stuff. There's plenty of songs that I put together, but this is the best. This is the grandest. This is the most exciting. This one I love. And he goes in from verse two. And this is where the young woman, Solomon's bride says, kiss me and kiss me again for your love is sweeter than wine. I love it how she says, kiss me and kiss me again. It's something that she's, she's craving, she's wanting, she's desiring. She can't get enough of. I've tasted your lips and I want more of your lips. They're exciting. They're refreshing. And I love it how she goes on and says, your love is sweeter than wine, which we'll get to a little bit in a, in a second. But ultimately what she's saying here is it is intoxicating. Your love is intoxicating. Your kisses are intoxicating. I want more from you. Some fun facts about kissing are this. Kissing relieves stress. It burns two calories per minute. That means if you go nuts, it could be classed as weight loss. It firms up the muscles in your face, so therefore it's cheaper than a facelift. So kiss more. It'll burn calories. Kiss more and it'll firm up your face and it'll help boost your immune system. If you're always sick, you're not kissing enough. One book I read in regards to kissing referred to a kiss as being this, a comma, a question mark, or an exclamation point. For those of you that don't really get grammar, like myself, I had to go and read it as well. A comma indicates a small break or a soft pause. And so the type of kiss this would be is not the kiss that Scott and Ali just did, but rather it's just a peck 
Maybe it's a peck on the cheek. Maybe it's a peck on the lips. But there's, there's not much in it. It's just a, it's a fluid motion that you're moving. I'm going from one spot to the other. I'm getting up. I'm leaving for work today. I'm going to give you a kiss. Done. Finished. It's a comma. That's all it is. It's not great. It's not exciting. The other one is a question mark. And I think we all know what a question mark is. It's, you're asking a question. It, it is a question. And this is, for those of you that are married, for those of you who are single, you're going to discover this, you single people. But for those of you that are married, have you ever been in a fight and immediately after the fight there's been a kiss and not have had any idea what that kiss meant? Because I'm not sure if that's a kiss to say, shut up. Or if it's a kiss as far as I'm sorry. Or it's a, it's a kiss as... Let's make up, or it's a kiss of I don't know what, but ultimately it ends up leading to a question mark. And there's plenty of kisses like that that we can do. We don't really know what they mean. We know they mean something, but it's, we're perplexed. This is a question mark, is a kiss that leaves you perplexed as to what's going on. Exclamation point is the kiss that ultimately I think, I hope Scott and Ali portrayed, where it expresses excitement or it is an additional emphasis. You don't have to say anything. This kiss, you don't have to speak. You just know exactly what they're thinking, what they're feeling, what they're meaning, what they're saying through that motion. And that's what she is saying. She is saying that his kisses are like an exclamation point. I know exactly how he feels. I know exactly that he loves me. I know exactly what he thinks about me. I know everything he wants to say to me by his kisses. His kisses express more than what words can because he does it with passion. Your kisses are more exciting than wine. And so the first point that I'll put down this is, is this. And there's a hundred other things that can come under this category that will do the same thing. But the first point is kissing ignites passion. I know, like I said, there'll be a hundred things that ignite passion. But one thing that definitely will ignite passion is kissing. One marriage counselor said it like this. Kissing is more intimate than sex which is an interesting thought. Followed on by a prostitute quoting this. I tell my clients I'll have sex with them, but I won't let them kiss me. Kissing is too intimate. Sometimes when, when we're approaching marriage, when we're talking about marriage or relationships or whatever it is, we have this, with this sense or this thinking that, that the most intimate that we can be is in bed, having sex. It's not the case. Sex generally will lead to two people wanting to get to a place. Sex can be extremely selfish. Sex can be completely all about you. But a kiss generally isn't. A kiss will ignite passion. It'll send sparks flying. It'll excite you about your spouse. It'll excite your spouse about you. It will speak. It will say a lot. For some, the thought of really kissing your spouse sounds exciting. Who's excited about kissing their spouse? There's a couple of you. We'll pray for the vast majority of you guys afterwards. But for some of you, this is exciting. For some, it's not going to be exciting. It's going to be terrifying or it's just going to be plain awkward. What the young woman is saying here is that she's intoxicated by her lover. She can't get enough of him. She can't kiss him enough. She can't get enough of his kisses. She can't smell him enough, touch him enough, feel him enough. She wants to be close with him. It plagues her mind, and that's why she is saying, don't stop kissing me. I want to be excited about you, and when you kiss me, I'm excited by you. So this is a question I've got for married couples. What does your kiss reveal? 
So the idea is, or the thought is, if a kiss was a temperature gauge of passion in your relationship, how much passion does your kiss reveal? I know that there'll be people thinking, but we don't necessarily kiss much, or we do the pecs a lot, or we, we do the question mark kisses, not really exclamation points. We haven't got those sort of passionate kisses, but we still love each other, and there's... I'm not debating that. I'm not wanting to say that. I'm not wanting to say because you don't kiss much that you don't love one another or aren't connected or don't have an intimate relationship. But if those are the thoughts that are running through your mind, this is a question that I'd like to ask. Can you ever cap off on the amount of intimacy you have in your relationship? Can you ever cap off on the amount of passion that you have towards your partner as far as towards your spouse? Does that ever cap off? So you should get to the point where it's a peck and that's the cap. Yes, there's passion. Yes, there's excitement. Yes, I love her. Yes, he loves me. But that's as far as I'm going to let it go because the rest, to be honest, is a little bit awkward. I don't want to stand there and kiss them for that long. It tastes funny. (laughs) Sage doesn't taste funny. Sage's kisses are more exciting than wine. So what I'm not wanting to do is say that because you're not kissing enough that there's something wrong, but rather challenge you if your kisses are the temperature gauge for your relationship, what is that gauge revealing? Is it passionate or is it lacking from passion? Focus on the family's formula or part of their formula. This is not the whole thing. For intimacy is passionately kissing for 5 to 30 seconds each day without leading to sex. Stay out of the bedroom. 15 seconds isn't that long until you start kissing. Has anyone tried this in your marriage of any sort? You try and kiss for an extended period of time, like, oh my goodness, it's so long, so good, but it's so long, I've got to stop. Anyone? No one? No one's done scientific tests. I've done it with Sage. She didn't know that I was doing it. I've been doing a lot of study for a couple of months leading up to this. And so I've been, I've been practicing on Sage. And so I'd grab Sage and I'd start like kissing her and then she's like, <laughs> start pushing away. Or then I'd push away. So I'm like, it's like so long. It's 15 seconds, but it takes an eternity. But ultimately it's not long, but we'll normally give up before we even get past five seconds. And we'll fall short of the, of the connection and the intimacy that it brings in that time if we stop there and wait, let alone how much weight loss we get to experience in that time as well. We burn 15 seconds without thinking every day of the week. We'll, we'll jump on Facebook. We'll watch TV. We'll do all sorts of stuff. But would we stop and spend 15 seconds to kiss our spouse? It's nearly impossible to kiss for an extended period of time and not feel closer. And it's just a fact. You can't kiss your spouse. And single people, I apologize. I'm talking to the married people right now. So we'll get to you guys in a second. But you can't kiss for an extended period of time and not get closer and not get more excited. What happens when you're dating if you start kissing for too long? Anyone that's brave enough to say it, I will say it, your hands start wandering. And you end up going to places that you shouldn't go because kissing will always ignite something. Kissing will always ignite a spark. It will always ignite a passion. And it's not just a sexual passion as much as it often outworks in that, but it will outwork in an emotional passion as well. And it will be an emotional connection. It refocuses us. Kissing for 15 seconds will refocus us on who we are to each other. 
I love you. I love her. He loves me. This is why we're together, because I love you. It will refocus on just who they are to you, why you married them, what they mean to you, who they are to you. The other one is, as far as a good point to kiss for 15 seconds a day, is this, our children need to see us kiss. What kind of image does it show or lesson does it preach if our kids never see us kiss? So fathers, if you've got boys and they never see you kiss their mum, how are they going to know to be intimate and affectionate to their wife? You can go vice versa. If you don't kiss in front of your, friend, if your kids, you're robbing your kids of demonstrating intimacy. It, it's great for us, but it's great for the kids as well. Um, verse 3 goes on like this. So it just said, kiss me and kiss me again for your love is sweeter than wine. And then verse 3, if it goes up on the screen, it says this, how pleasing is your fragrance. Your name is like the spreading fragrance of scented oils. No wonder all the young women love you. He was a stud muffin. He looked good. Everyone liked him. And so she goes on and says, so this is still the young woman speaking. Take me with you. Come, let's run. The king has brought me into his bedroom. The perfume that she was talking about in this verse here is, was an expensive nard. So for anyone that's got any, I suppose, history, you'll know that they didn't have baths back then. They didn't jump in the shower and turn the switch. Uh, this is... Alan, how many thousands of years ago is it? Have you got off the top of your head? About two and a half thousand years ago. So unless the aliens turned up and showed them how to shower and then took that knowledge back away. It was a joke. Only a couple of you got it, but (laughs) I didn't hear that, so I'm going to leave that. So they didn't just jump in, turn the shower on. So they didn't smell good all the time. So what they'd do is if they had enough money, they'd buy this nard that was a costly perfume that they'd hang around them so they smelled good because they're stinky. If anyone has been to a third world country, you'll generally know like what this is like. It's no indictment on a third world country. We're just very blessed in, in, in Western countries to have showering facilities, um, soap readily available, and all of that is at our fingertips. So we don't have this problem. We don't have to walk around with nard hanging around our necks. But so what she's saying is this, that not only one, you smell good, but secondly, your name smells good which is a bizarre statement, which is an interesting thought. And so my second point is this, character secures passion. Nothing destroys passion quicker than poor character. Guys, when you get married or the day you got married, that's the best you're going to look probably. It's just a fact. Girls, exactly the same thing. That is the best that you're going to look. It's not to mean that it's all downhill from there or anything like that. But we know we age. As we get older, we don't have that same youthful look. It doesn't mean that we're still not attractive, but they're still not beautiful. We're going to get into that in, 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 other, in other sessions as far as in, in other messages coming along. But the reality is that your beautiful good looks will age as time goes on. And so what ultimately becomes attractive and should be the most attractive part should be our character. So for guys, women aren't so much concerned with how you look, just FYI. So for the single people, guys, women aren't as concerned about how you look. 
but she'll be interested in and attracted to your character. The same thing can be flipped for, for the chicks as well. And so I've written down a couple of lists of good character and poor character. And it's not a complete list. This isn't the, the be-all, end-all list, but this is a list. So good character could be honesty, humility, you're gentle, respectful, self-controlled. You're available for your spa- spouse's physical and emotional needs, like you're, you're present. You're compassionate, you're punctual, you're on time, you're courageous, you're diligent, you're faithful. The list could go on and on and on and on and on. Some of you may agree with some of that being good character, some of you may not. Doesn't matter. Poor character could be like this. You're big-headed, you're arrogant, you're boastful, you're careless, you're cruel, you're dishonest, you're dogmatic, you're flirtatious, you're greedy, you're lazy, you're quarrelsome, you are self-centered. And here's the truth, or the reality is, character will trump beauty every single day of the week. You can be the most beautiful person in the world, but if you haven't got character, eh, you're not attractive. The beauty of character is it's something that we can always work on. We can always grow into it. So the re- regardless of how beautiful you are, you could have the worst character, but you can grow into it. You could have the best character and you can lose that character if you're not diligent in keeping it. Your character is what you are and it is what your name is referencing or it is what others see in you. Here's the question. Is the character... That others see in you, is it good? Specifically to the marriage for a second, for you guys, is the character that your spouse sees in you good? Is it pleasing? Is it attractive? Does it entice passion? Does it make them want to draw closer to you? Does it attract them to you? Does their character attract you to them or is it doing the opposite? As husbands, what character are we bringing into our relationships? As, as you wives, what character are you bringing into your relationships? What is attractive? When you get married, generally it's a physical attraction. But for those of you that have been married, realize that that physical attraction, that, gosh, she looks good, it wears off after a while if they're not a person of character. And regardless of where you sit on the fence, whether you're a male or a female, They can be as attractive as can be. They can be smoking hot, but if they haven't got the character, it won't last. Not to say that the marriage won't last, but I can tell you now, it's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. It's not going to be as easy. The third point is this, and I apologize for the the bluntness of this. It's not that blunt. It's actually a really stupid name for a point, but I could not think for the life of me of any other thing to call it, is this. Smell destroys passion. As far as if you smell bad, passion's not going to be there. Ben, if you come back smelling like a dairy farm, Belinda's going to tell you to go to another room. So when I like, so part of my job, I'm obviously employed here, but I also still work as a farrier at the same time. And when I was younger as a farrier, I used to do a lot of hot shoeing, and that's where the the, the shoe gets heated up red hot, and then you take it and you burn it on the horse's foot. And it smells like burnt hair. I personally think it smells great. <laughs> yeah, Tyler, Tyler's at the back doing this. He's like, yeah, but you can smell money. I don't know if it was that, but I always thought the smell was intoxicating. Like I would, I'd go to the bank and I'd be banking checks. Or I'd be doing something, anywhere I'd go. And I'd, I'd, I'd be sitting there and then you'd, you'd hear, 
And people start looking around and say, like, they think something's on fire or someone's like caught their hair on fire or something's going on and they don't know what's going on. And I'm like, yeah, I smell good. <laughs> and I literally always do that, like, I smell good. Anywhere I'd go, like you, when you're walking, you can't smell it and then you stop and you're like, oh, I smell good. And then I'd get home and like I march up and I go and grab a sage and I give you the 15 second kiss. And I'm thinking, like, I smell good. She's attracted to me. This is awesome. This is the first couple of little bit of our marriage. And she's like, get out of here. You stink. So apparently I didn't smell good. And so the rule became, if I was hot chewing, and still is, I get home, I have to get rid of my clothes, basically go and put them in and burn them, get the smell off them, go and have a shower and put some clean stuff on and, and come back. And so there's not going to be much intimacy if there is a lack of smell or poor smell, it wouldn't be lack of smell, it would be smell. But the other thought is this, how do you even present yourself? Because how you present yourself will be either appeasing or not so much to your spouse. Have, did anyone notice what animals are like when it's mating season? All the moves come out. All the, the colors come out. Like they've got bright red breasts as far as the birds and they, they walk funny. They've, they put their feathers in the air and, and do all that sort of thing. They put off scents. Like have you guys ever watched what a rooster does as he parades around the chickens? It gets really bad for the chickens, but we won't go there. <laughs> but ultimately he struts his stuff. Like he's... He's wanting to show them that he is a good catch. For those of you that have been around chickens, realize that it doesn't matter what they think, it's happening anyways. <laughs> but the reality is this. In the animal kingdom, they will present themselves well. But, and this is potentially where I can talk maybe a little bit more to the single people, is that how do you present yourself? Do you present yourself good or average to the Married people, how do you present yourself? Is it good or not? So husbands, is your wife proud to be married to you? As far as when she walks in a room with you, is she proud to be with you? Guys, wives, you can ask the same question. When you walk into a room, who am I talking to right now? I can't remember. Is it the husband's or the wife? Wives. No, this husband's. When you walk into the room, are you proud to be with your wife? I'm not wanting to be superficial as far as looks are not everything, but they are something. So here's a question, and I'll use it as if I'm talking to the men. Do you dress well for her? Do you smell like she wants to smell? Are you honest? And this is back to character. You're a man of integrity. Back to character. I heard one story that where a wife said this, or the, 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 there was his husband and wife, they're having marriage counseling, and it came up in the marital counseling that he was upset because she wouldn't wear makeup. It's a little bit petty, yeah? Well, it sounds a little bit petty until it goes on. He said she never wear makeup at home, but as soon as she goes out to see anyone, she put makeup on. I don't know, it sounds petty, but and what he felt was it was it was a disservice to him. It was it was he was struggling with it in that he would ask her to put makeup on. And she's like, I'm not going anywhere, I can't be bothered, I don't need to. But as soon as she went out to visit anyone, she'd put makeup on. And so he's there was a lot more stuff obviously going on in the marriage than that. But what it was saying to him is that you care how you look more to anyone else than you do to me. And that's an issue. 
So like for some people, maybe you don't like makeup. Women, maybe you don't like your dudes wearing makeup. Fantastic. Some guys don't necessarily like girls wearing makeup either. I love the fact that Sage doesn't have to wear makeup. She often does wear makeup and I tell her to take it off. So I married a girl that didn't wear makeup and she's gradually wore a bit more makeup as she's got older. But it hasn't made you look any better. Ooh. <laughs> this, could get, this could get really bad. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> some wives or some... The reality is we all want to be passionate about our spouses, don't we? But for the sake, again, I'll talk as if I'm talking to the guys. Sometimes we don't help our wives be passionate about us. In this, he has let himself go. Or that he doesn't wear what she wants him to wear. He dresses like a slob. But she wants him to dress like this, but he dresses like that. He doesn't smell like she wants to smell. He, ben smells like the dairy farm. Belinda wants him to smell like Calvin Klein. No one's happy. She likes short hair, so he decides to grow dreadlocks. She likes aftershave. Ben still smells like the dairy. <laughs> she values a person's word, but he never does what he promises. Can you see the issue here? Like, we're wanting to build passion in our marriages, but a lot of the time we're not interested in having a discussion with our partners to know what makes them passionate about us. We, we, want our passion, we want our partners, as far as our spouses, to be proud of us. But then we won't do anything to help them with that. What I don't want to do is, is create superficial where it's all looks and facades and everything. But the reality is some things to us aren't a big deal, but to the other person it is. If we want to have healthy and good marriages, then it's my opinion that if that's the case, then we need to be deliberate with doing what they feel is attractive towards them. Because the person that I am trying to impress is my wife, no one else. So she, first and foremost, needs to be happy with how I smell. She, first and foremost, needs to be excited about what I wear, how I dress. Now, the extent or the opposite extreme of that could be that maybe she wants you to wear something that you're completely not comfortable with. Well, then that's when compromise comes in. That's when you have a discussion about it, that you come to something in the middle. But the reality is this, that character, your poor character will be bad for your marriage, but same thing will be if you do the opposite always of what she or he wants to do, it'll be shocking for your marriage. So here's a question to you married guys, married peoples, not just guys, girls, you don't get out scot-free. Yeah. Is there anything in my character? And this is you asking your spouse, not right now, but this is what you're going to ask your spouse or encourage you on the way home. Is there anything in my character that you find unattractive? Is there anything in my wardrobe that you find unattractive? What we want to do is cultivate communication. Without communication, I'll ask the band to come up, please. Without communication, you actually can't build intimacy. So what, I've got some questions written down on those sheets of paper with the idea of getting us starting to talk to one another so that we can communicate. So I know what she likes and she knows what I like and vice versa. And this is the fourth point. Character is keeper. So verse 4b goes on and says this. If you put it up on the screen, please, Damo. This is a young woman of Jerusalem speaking. So this isn't the bride. This isn't true. I can't remember her name now. It's 
starts with T. doesn't matter. It's the young one of Jerusalem. These are the friends. How happy we are for you, O King. We praise your love even more than wine. And then this is a young woman, bride. She's saying, how right they are to adore you. Speaking of her husband. Here's the truth. You single guys, these married people have dealt with this, but you're yet to deal with it. When you, marry, or when you start dating a girl, she will come with a lot of friends. And even if there's not a lot of friends, for anyone that's been amongst a group of women, they sound like a lot of friends. Might only be two or three of them, but you'd swear there's two or three million of them. They talk a lot. And the reality is that you need to win over the girlfriends as well. Girls, you need to win over the guy friends of your guy that you're dating as well. For the reality is this. What's happening here is the young women of Jerusalem are reiterating their approval of him to her. See, friends are normally really discerning with what's in someone's heart. As far as you're starting to date someone new, you're with someone new, you found someone new, your friends will normally be very discerning about their character. They'll normally see character that you don't because ultimately you're knocked over by how good they look. And so here's a question. For those of you that are dating, and it's never too late to ask this question when you're dating, what do other people say about their character? Specifically, what do your friends say about their character? What do the people that are external to you guys say about their character? So for your, you single people, be diligent. When you're dating, what do people say about their character? Do people around them testify to them as being a person of great character? It's not to say that they can't grow, but what does their character reveal? How do they treat people when you're around them that aren't you? You hear stories sometimes of a guy and a girl going out dating and he is lovely to her, but he treats a waitress with absolute disrespect. And if that's happening, I can absolutely guarantee what's going to happen when you get married or as he gets more comfortable with you, that disrespect will now turn to you because that's part of his character. It's not to say that he can't grow or he can't change or if it's, a, or if it's her in that position, she can't grow or change, but the reality is that it's a lack of character. So what do we do? Like, how do we go if we're dating, for you dating people? How do we go about looking for people? Andy Stanley says this. Become the person that you are looking for is looking for. As far as what he's saying is pursue Jesus and look for the person that is pursuing Jesus. You start with godly character. This is what Andy Stanley goes on and says. You start with godly character first. You're not looking for a spouse. You're chasing Jesus you're seeking him first and the byproduct is that is while you do that that someone will come along Matthew Matthew 6 33 says this it says seek first the kingdom of heaven and all of this will be added unto you so for you single people the promise is this seek first God and what you're looking for in a husband or a wife it will turn up so here's the questions I want to end with What are you currently doing if you're married? What are you currently doing to encourage the passion for your spouse? What are you doing to entice passion in them? What are you doing to entice the passion in your marriage? Are you being proactive with that or not at all? And can I encourage everyone to that that is that is married, focus on fifteen seconds a day of passionate kissing. Focus on communicating, sitting down and, and going through some of these questions and and getting feedback and asking honest questions. Focus on date nights. Do whatever you can do to be encouraging the passion. 
Here's the last question is this. Do you allow your spouse to challenge you to change? So it seems that we can all go through life, happy days, and not allow anyone to challenge us, specifically our spouse, and not allow them to speak into our lives. But they're the one that's meant to be walking alongside of us the closest. So Sage knows me better than anyone else. So she's walking closer with me than anyone else. So I need to invite her, and this is a key word, I need to invite her to challenge me. As a husband, as a father, as a godly man, as a pastor, as a friend, I need to invite her to challenge me, to say, hey, Rob, I think you're missing up in this area. Hey, Rob, I'm not sure about what this is revealing about your character. Can we have a conversation? I don't like how you wear. I don't like that you tuck your jeans in up to your armpits. She does, actually, just so everyone knows. So husbands, wives, be diligent over the next week. Invite conversation that challenges you. As single people, invite conversation that is beneficial to discovering the character of the person that you're dating. What we ultimately want to be is we want to be a church that impacts the community with healthy marriages, with healthy relationships, that grows people in their character, that grows people in their love for Jesus, that grows people in, in every aspect in life. And part of that aspect is marriage. So that's why we're doing it. That's why we're looking at this. So how about everyone stand? We're just going to sing through this one last song. So if anyone like prayer for anything, if maybe some of this has spoken to you in regards to, well, I'm struggling with my marriage. I'm struggling with, with where we're at. I'm struggling with the character that I see in my spouse. I'm struggling with the character that I see in me. I'd like to some prayer to help walk through that. If any of this has stirred something that you'd like prayer for, I'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Um, some of the elders would love the opportunity to pray for you. So if you want prayer for anything, come to the front. We'd love to pray for you. Otherwise, spend some time in worship. We've got a couple of minutes left. Let me pray for you before we do that. Father, I thank you, Jesus, that you've got a lot to say about things, Father. And one of those things that you've got a lot to say is about, is about marriage, Father. Is it about, is about intimacy? Is it about developing connections? Is it about dating and relationships? And I pray, God, that we always press into you to want to hear what you have to say about these matters, about these things, God. But I pray also as we go home, Jesus, that we invite communication with our spouses. We invite them to challenge us, God. We invite them to stretch us, Jesus, and we invite them to invite you into it, God, to do the stretching as well. And for all of those that are single, Father, I pray that they do the same, that they invite the conversation, they invite the input from other people to look at who they're dating past the lens of how attractive that person is. I pray ultimately what comes out of this, Jesus, is healthy marriages, healthy sex lives, healthy relationships, healthy intimacy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. Please subscribe to hear more sermons from Epicenter Church.